Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 113, the one about Apple Pro Vision, perfect podcast scripts, and the film Thelma and Louise. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a digital marketing veteran. He is a speaker, trainer and advisor with nearly three decades of experience who enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build better online campaigns faster. I give you Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. You've just heard from my co-host, a marketing speaker and consultant who spent his whole career helping his customers keep their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Catsman's and Marketing Plans and the creator of the Roger video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much, Pascal. And we are here for episode one. 113 113 and we've got lots to talk about we've got lots of news items to discover as always we've got a couple of really interesting content spotlights we're going to head back in time to find out what was happening in history and we'll be looking at the latest marketing tech and apps and that will lead us right up to this week's film which pascal you have chosen i'm taking you and our audience to back to 1991 with Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. And you know what? We watched that last night in preparation for this podcast, Pascal. Mm. And I don't think we have actually watched it since it was originally released in wow. 1991. So really interested in catching up on it and, and seeing how we feel about a film which is well over 30 years old now. Now it's going to be exciting. And you know, you were mentioning about this being number 113, mm. which includes number 13. And maybe that explains all the troubles we've had in a green room uh, with uh, <laughs> weather, with sore throat, tech, lights, microphones. It's been a bizarre start of this recording, isn't it? Yeah, everything in the background tech-wise <laughs> seems to have been glitchy today. So fingers crossed on screen, we won't get any more trouble in the next hour or so. But... In anticipation that things are going to go wrong, I think we should be fleet of foot today. What do you think, Pascal? Should we head straight into In The News? And we begin with some stats. 67% of small and medium-sized enterprises have no marketing action plan, and more than half do not even have a business plan, according to research by the Marketing Centre. Lidl was the fastest growing grocer in the UK for the fifth month in a row in January. Its sales grew by 11.9% year on year, making it the only supermarket to see double digit growth in that period. Sainsbury's was the next fastest growing retailer, with its sales increasing by 8.1%. Now, brands need to be careful about how they tap into trends, according to Mintel. As an example, 55% of UK adults believe well-being claims have become a marketing gimmick. Despite TikTok having a reputation for being the platform of Gen Z, or Gen Z if you listen to this across the pond, users over 45 are the fastest growing age group on the platform. Almost one quarter, i.e. 23% of TikTok's user base are over 45. Well, according to details shared with Marketing Dive, Expedia is Netflix's first global advertising partner to activate a multi-market campaign on the streamer's ad-supported plan throughout 2024. 
in 2024, advertisers are set to waste over $71 billion, that's £59 billion, on traffic generated by invalid activity, which includes bots and automated scripts, an increase of 33% on 2022. Dear, well, despite tightened budgets, marketers did not cut their plans to show up for Super Bowl 58 on the 11th of February, with a 30-second ad reportedly going for between 6.5 to $7 million. Fantastic. And finally, Groundhog Lays stars Stephen Tobolowsky, who played Ned in the 1993 comedy classic Groundhog Day, as he repeatedly visits a checkout counter and slowly realises he's stuck in a time loop, featuring eight custom spots promoting a different flavour of the Lays chip variety. Pascal, let's stay with Groundhog Lays. It's not often an advertising campaign these days catches my attention. This one did, obviously because it taps into pop culture. It taps into probably one of the most iconic films of the last 30-odd years, Groundhog Day. But I think it's totally on brand. It creates a call to action. It tells you exactly what it is all about. It's about Lay's and the fact that they have all these different flavours. But it's the fact that it builds upon a plot in a film that everybody knows. I think it's just a win-win advert. Absolutely brilliant as far as I'm concerned. And one of the best TV advertising campaigns I've seen for a while. Just a shame, of course, that it's not been shown in the uk because of course in the uk we don't really have lays we do have the same manufacturer but we call them walkers crisps and obviously groundhog walkers crisps doesn't <laughs> roll off the tongue as well does it now you share with me the um the link to the youtube video and then you can't have to watch all of them you know all eight variation and and what is interesting at first i thought it was a typo so because everybody knows the phonetics of groundhog days because of the movie that we mentioned actually uh, interestingly in this week in history and i thought oh they've got that wrong it should be groundhog days because of course it was days before the the uh, the, um, the announcement from the infamous rodent and then you you kind of pay attention no it's it's fine it's actually the way it should be i think also the choice of the the character ned is because there are many, many characters you could have chosen from, but that character that is essentially is so memorable, thanks to the wonderful um, acting, of course, f from from Stephen Tobolowsky, but also they can, am I right, am I right, am I right, you know, all those things, <laughs> which uh, they should have used, I think, in the advert, but uh, it's just um, inspired. And we, you and I have mentioned this time and time again, the blurring of boundaries between the business of marketing and entertainment. And, of course the complete and utter coincidence that the fact that you chose <laughs> Thelma and Louise to be our film marketing film today and you chose that after I added this news item to the list and of course Stevens in Thelma and Louise as well which is a, a lovely little happy coincidence and I think we should probably just point out as well whilst we're on the subject of the groundhog that Punk's attorney Phil didn't see his shadow when he popped out of his burrow in Gobbler's Knob. And that means apparently we'll be getting an early spring this year. So we should be all glad and thankful for that. And you should be glad and thankful that I didn't ask you to say Gobbler's Knob live on air and on video once again. Pascal, let's head back to the beginning of those news items and just briefly talk about the fact that 67% of small, medium-sized businesses have no marketing action plan. 
And well, in fact, nearly half of them don't have any business plan at all, according to research by the marketing center. But we, we probably shouldn't be surprised by this because this isn't really a new trend, is it? It's been the case since we've been doing marketing. I would say, however, the figure feels high to me. Uh, so I went in, found the article, read the report and so on. And it's it's high from the point of view of, I think generally, people will have a marketing strategy, but this is talking about the action plan. Mm. And I think this is really a symptom of how hard it is now to put an action plan together when things move on so quickly, when you have the disruption of AI, when really, um, you know, algorithm will change and, and move on. So so I think it's around this idea of uh, adaptability because I thought six, seven feels awfully high, but when you look, look at the details, it kind of makes sense to me that this was maybe an action plan that is actually current or one that is a real source of, of inspiration that people are gonna, gonna implement. But the, the figure for, for the, you know, no business plans, 54%, I uh, think is about right. It's been the, the, the same for many years now. Yeah, I mean, I all, always used to do a little trick at conferences when I was speaking. I don't do it so much now. Maybe I should start doing it again now, was actually ask the question, put your hands up if you actually have a written marketing strategy. And it was always quite scary how few people put their hands up, especially as if you did that trick at a marketing conference where you would expect people to know better. But yeah, it's interesting. And I think it just highlights the fact that we do need to find the time to put these things in place because if you don't have the plan if you don't have the action plan then it, you know you're not you're going to struggle to actually implement it were you surprised pascal by the fact that even though tiktok is the platform for gen z gen z that actually you know almost one quarter of tiktokers are now over the age of 45 which includes us of course no, I wasn't because this has happened before with other platforms. Um, so there's something actually quite interesting that that should be the case. You, know, you and I would have said the same thing about Instagram four or five years ago, the same thing about Facebook. So it feels as though history repeating itself in a very comforting way, which is that when it comes down to it, those with the most disposable income uh, make better use and full use of social media compared to their younger counterparts. And and I think therefore, it's a warning for all businesses out there to not fall for the kind of marketing of marketing where a platform like TikTok will have to find a slogan, will have to find a strap line and a hook to get your attention. And they're going to claim to be the chosen destination for a younger audience. And I think sometimes it may serve a particular purpose, but actually it, it hides the truth. And I'm glad that you found that, that, that information because it shows that, you know, for markets and businesses who have been hesitant about getting into you know, the world of TikTok with this very unique visual language, because of the calendar is for a younger audience, the stats are telling you that uh, even the, the founders and, you know, the, the, the leaders of TikTok are going to have to interestingly perhaps review their marketing strap lines. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, I'm resisting the temptation to talk about the superb owl, which actually happened last night. Sorry, the Super Bowl. Um, and even though this is a really interesting news item, I th think we'll probably wait maybe a week or two and see what the reaction has been from the adverts that 
happened during the Super Bowl. And of course, it's always a, a catalyst for a massive marketing discussion on LinkedIn and across the socials about whether TV advertising is dead finally or whether the fact that these are the best adverts ever produced. And I think we'll give it a week or two to settle down before we dive in and talk about the Super Bowl. So great news items as always. Thank you for your reactions to those. I think we should move on, dive in a little bit deeper on a couple of individual topics and we'll move on to Content Spotlights. And in this part of the show, Pascal and I surprise each other with a specific piece of content. It could be a video, it could be a podcast, it could be a printed article. So Pascal, what have you got for us this week? So I've got a long-form article that was sent to me via email by the wonderful team at Captivate.fm, the platform that we use to host the podcast. And I want to give you the title, but start by giving reasons as to why I chose it. And then I'll tell you a bit more about the content of the article. And as always, everyone, we've got the link in the show notes as well. So the title is at follows, How to Write the Perfect Podcast Script plus examples and template. This was by Ben Dodd at Captivate.fm, one of the team members working closely with Mark Asquith. And it's interesting because this article um, was sent to me via email. Then I saw a reference to it on social media. Then I got another email telling me about a video that was doing a bit of a review of the article. And I interestingly thought that that was a very, very good example of what content marketing should be nowadays. So very, very quickly um, to let people know, there is a danger for content marketing now to be relegated to this idea of you write an article, um, Roger, and then all you do are a bunch of extract from the article. And as someone would say, you plonk it on social media and you think that that's content marketing. I need to be very, very careful. So in the case of this article, there was two things that was um, quite impressive to me. Firstly, obviously, Ben had written the article um, thoroughly and fully. This is a long read, and there could be a lot of examples, which I mentioned in a moment. But he took the trouble to also embed a video from a while back. So, you know, repurposing um, a video about script writing for podcast. Actually, Mark Athquist was the uh, deliverer of the message, and it was kind of put into into long form article. But then later on, maybe a few days later, there was a short form video from another um, teammate, Sarah McDowell from Captivate.fm. And she took a different perspective on the article and gave a quick summary of the do's and don'ts when it comes to podcast script. But there was no repetition. It was a different perspective, it was a different approach and so on. And I felt that that was a very, very good example of what we mean by content marketing. You have your premium lead content and then it is supported by other form of content, not just extract that copied and pasted all over the interweb. Number two, I think the advice uh, given around this idea of script for to help you with your podcast recording is valid for all forms of communication, from public speaking, as you'll see in a moment, which makes sense because it's audio after all, to long-form content writing um, as well. Let me move on now to th the advice, and this is not going to do justice to, of course, the, the richness of what is being shared in this article and the supporting content pieces as well. But the main major takeaways would be number one, if you're going to make some notes for yourself, and they don't have to be word for word script, that's your advice. But no matter if you're going to make notes for yourself, write how, how you would speak. 
So don't start to reinvent a language that you wouldn't use or one that is going to catch you out in the midst of a delivery, whether that's podcast, on stage, or even in the written form. So you're going to write your synopsis, your structure, whatever, use words that you would use comfortably. Remember to give yourself, but also your audience, the context. Why are you sharing this information? What has happened or what has been the trigger point for that information? And number three, allow yourself some space to actually change your mind and adapt to the reaction of the audience or to the flow of the podcast and so on. For me, the most important one that you and I will always recommend people do is when you do a structure, when you do an outline as part of your script for podcast or an article in Vern, make sure that you split your content into topics and subtopics and remember to highlight the the key talking points this structure is going to be very helpful for you it will make actually less hard to remember everything as one unit of information but actually going to break it down it allows for poses but it allows for the next key takeaway is to prepare your segue phrases how do you move your audience your listeners and even your reader from one key statement to the other how do you make that link and you know of course use segments on the show and we have our only two favorite segues so the example that they gave interestingly which suggests that there may have been some influence from mark asquith who is a keen musician and a music listener like you so the ex- example they give is based on talking about the beatles and here it is Okay, now we've covered the tension at the Abbey Road sessions. George is feeling undervalued and John and Paul's have got deferring musical vision. Now, let's talk about the day the Beatles actually split up. So you kind of find a way using a bit of storytelling and, and analogy to take an audience from point A to point B or from point you know, G to point A. So segue phrases are very, very important. Very, very quickly, make sure that you always tell people about the key takeaways as a reminder at the end, and you must work on your conclusion. And there was one thing I've learned the hard way, um, Roger, particularly with public speaking, I need to work a lot harder on my conclusions. The intro, I always get it well, but the conclusion, I'm never very happy, and that's a lack of prep and research. When it comes to the examples that they give as part of this long format of content, they give the example of a script and structure for a short podcast, a long, longer podcast. They have examples for solo shows or shows with a co-host, and they have an example for an interview-style podcast. So again, great, great article, great example of content marketing, but also some very valid reminders. We, because sometimes, yeah, we can cut corners a bit. We get overconfident, and it's a very good go back to basics. Makes me wonder, actually, two questions immediately spring to mind. First of all, how does what we do here on Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast fit into the perfect scripts that they're advocating the use of here? Mm. But secondly, I'm not convinced that that many podcast people actually do write scripts. They probably have a outline of what they want to go for and if they're an interview show they may have written some questions down but i'm not sure that many people will physically go through the process of writing the script in advance which probably implies that there's quite a lot of people out there who just wing it and don't get me wrong they wing it in a very convincing and a very professional manner and have probably built up huge audiences as a result of it but i would suspect there are quite a few people who don't actually write the perfect podcast script no, no, and listen, we to answer you into question number one, I think that um, but sometimes time is against us because this is a long form audio and video magazine for sure. But the summary of the key takeaways is probably the one that we on occasion uh, have to forego, you know, because of time constraints. 
But the one telltale sign when somebody you say is very talented in winging it is a lack of segue phrases. Uh, mm. That for me is a number one bit of advice. This idea that they don't take you on this journey from one you know, portion of learning to another. They just move on rapidly and it's hard to keep up with them. Right, that's interesting. That's interesting. What about um, your selection, Roger? Well, this is a, this is interesting too, and undoubtedly you'll have seen, heard, and read a lot of the hype around the Apple Vision Pro headset, goggle set, whatever it is called, that hit the streets last week. And you'll have seen lots of memes already of, of people walking around in the streets with these gigantic goggles on, sort of making it look like the complete idiots by... <laughs> reaching up and pincering the uh, the sky above their heads and it's the usual story isn't it you've got some people saying this is this is the revolution that we've been waiting for this is the future of virtual reality this is the best thing since the last best thing and it's very very hard to cut through the hype and i came across a video on youtube and the headline was the apple vision pro, pro review and the, the um, subheading was tomorrow's ideas with today's tech, which I thought was quite interesting. Now, this is a YouTube video by Marcus Brownlee. Now, Marcus is a tech reviewer on YouTube, and he must be a pretty good tech reviewer because he's got 18.4 million subscribers. So you know what happens with some of these reviewers, Pascal? They are the shiny new toy advocates. They just bow down and say, this is the best thing that I've ever reviewed, and they don't really take into consideration any of the potential flaws. What I was impressed with was how Marcus was really just quite general and he was critical he was supportive and he was analytical and it's a very fair review as a result but i have to say that having watched it i couldn't help but agree with his overall um conclusion that this is absolutely indicative of where things will go tomorrow but the fact that it's been done with today's tech actually highlights how far we actually have to go to realize i think the vision that apple have with this so i'm sure you've seen these things pascal i mean they look incredibly well made but this is huge huge goggle headset that you wear which is very front end loaded and he mm. admits straight away that it's very weighty and you know it, it makes you lean forward um, straight away now what i hadn't realized until i watched this video and to me this is the huge 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 problem with this thing is that it isn't i thought it was like goggles that you could see through like a pair of sunglasses so you could see what was in front of you in real life and the goggles there and somehow superimposed text and apps and this that and the other over the top of the real image but of course that sort of technology doesn't exist in enough detail to create what apple want to do so what they quite honestly do is create a total image of the real world behind the visor so you're not looking through a pair of goggles you're actually looking at a screen which then reproduces in fairly accurate almost photorealistic detail what you're seeing and and that to me immediately is just that is isn't that lunacy that you have to wear goggles as big as that to actually show you what you can see with your own eyes 
just in order for you to be able to overlay these graphics. Now, ultimately, and I don't know how far away it will be, a year, two years, five years, yes, if you could wear a pair of goggles which let you see the real world through your own eyes and at the same time superimposed all this information on top, then yes, maybe I can get into it and think, yeah, this is a really good idea. But to me, to have to wear a pair, effectively a, a, a closed TV screen over your eyes, shutting out everything just so that you can see the text. You may as well walk along the street with your iPhone in your hand so you can use your eyes to see where you're going. You can use your eyes to look down onto your phone. And, and you know, I'm, I'm praising Marcus for not just bowing down to Apple and say, this is the best thing you've ever done, because it clearly isn't. Maybe the vision is, but I think the, the as he says, today's tech just doesn't allow them to do what they want. And hence, I think, all those memes you've seen of these people wearing these goggles, and Casey Neistat's been out there as well, you know, with these, he's been trying to do his hoverboarding or um, whatever it is through the streets of New York. And even he says, this is ridiculous. I'm going through the streets of New York, but I'm looking out, uh, I'm, I'm using this visor, which is actually giving me a representation, not the reality. Mm. Uh, and to me, until we get to that stage where it is you looking at the real world with superimposed stuff over the top of it, then Marcus's conclusion that it's tomorrow's ideas and today's tech is absolutely all you need to know. Do you know what's nice about this selection? Very much like mine, it's got multiple levels of lessons and mm. and and you know because ultimately the purpose for this podcast and video magazine is about uh, ideas for the viewers and listeners and, and making you think differently, taking lessons from different industries. So firstly, we, we have the the approach to the, the content and, and the video recording and this idea of sincerity and, and um, honesty in the review, which I think is essentially lacking on YouTube for, for a number of reasons. But for me, it's also back to this idea of, um, you know, fools rush in. With some sympathy for brands like Apple, Meta, and Google, because you've got you have to have to go through a, a development stage, and and get things out to market, get some feedback, improve, and so on. I, I've been wondering a lot about by the headsets. It may surprise you, but this idea of you know vertical content distribution. So, is there a near future where you will only be able to access, let's say, Apple? type content via the apple headset and and goggles and iphones and so on uh, are we moving towards more silos and, and and verticals so in the case of meta would be the oculus otherwise you will not be able to access you know other platforms but to date un unless you are a very loyal to the point of being a little foolish fan the, the feedback is very, very mixed. I mean, we've got people saying, I'm, I'm sick of wearing this headset and I have a massive red mark on my forehead for the rest of the day <laughs> yeah. uh, as a telltale sign that, you know, to my friends and family that I've been, I've been in the, on the virtual world uh, again. So is that, you know, essentially a phase we're going to have to go through, you know, uh, clunky design to a point or certainly uncomfortable and, and almost kind of, you know, until you're right in two years' time, um, it's going to set. But to your point, I would rather use my phone like we do with Google for example hold it roughly at arm's length so I can see the string I can see the information as opposed to wearing um, you know the headset as designed currently 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that I always think is funny is when you see crowds at concerts these days mm-hmm. um and if you see a shot of a huge crowd at a concert they'll all be holding their phones up um either filming it or or taking photographs and it's just a sea of phones whereas 20 or 30 years ago it would have probably been a sea of people holding <laughs> lighters up and and swaying as they sing along to their songs and and it, you take it to this extreme you see you can imagine a, a crowd of people at a live event with real people on stage in front of them. And yet everybody's wearing these stupid, great big headsets, which don't allow them to actually see the real thing with their own eyes, but creates a vision of that in front of their eyes for them to see it. It maybe it's just get, I'm getting to that older stage now, the grumpy older stage, but it just seems nuts to me that when you've got eyes that can let you see something in reality that you would want to cover them up and create an an image of that over your eyes just so that you can have text laid upon it and then that's why i can't get my head around this until they come up with something that lets you see what's in front of you with your own eyes and Mm. have the text then i just don't see that it's it's actually onto a winner at all and rant over uh Fabulous technology. I mean, that's be you know unbelievable technology. The way that it moves very quickly to it follows your eyes. It's it's constantly um, updating, just like a camera would. Apparently, it's got ISO and focusing and and um, you know aperture and all of that to try and create the same image. So it's a remarkable piece of technology. But as as this guy says, it's just not right yet. But mm. we always don't we. Owe a debt of gratitude to the people in the past who came up with ideas like this to allow us to live the life that we lead. And undoubtedly, if we are doing this show in 2030, we may look back in this week in history at the Apple ProVision goggles and say, wow, just look at what we've got now. So let's go back in time and see what was happening this week in history. And in 1965, the second Dr. Beeching report comes out, which led to the development of the major railway trunk road, or Beeching II. In 1971, the UK introduces decimal currency for the first time. Ooh, I didn't know that. Well, in 1998, The Wedding Singer premieres in New York City, produced on a budget of just $80 million. It grossed $123 million worldwide. It's considered to be one of Sadler's best comedy. In 2011, Valve Corporation announces that more than 12 million copies of Half-Life 2 have been sold. The successor to the original Half-Life game won 39 Game of the Year awards and was named Game of the Decade at the 2012 Spike Video Game Awards. Are you a Half-Life fan, Pascal? I did create my avatar for the very first Half-Life, and I think I <laughs> meandered around the world, and then I was just too busy, so I kind of left it. But what an impact it had, though, and it really got people thinking what you could do with world, with virtual environment. And going back to what you were talking about, the, 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 the Apple headset, the, 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 this is where it all began, the conversation or so, more than t- 10 years ago. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I suppose... Um, the gaming environment just going back to what we said about apple i can see people putting on a headset like that to play a game because the environment is not the real world you want to be in a fantasy environment whether it's world war one world war two or the world of lord of the rings i can see that application i just can't see the application 
when you want to see what is really in front of you. So, yeah, had had Half-Life had access to headsets like that, I imagine that I would have been quite comfortable using one. Yeah, but back then you were playing uh, on your computer, yeah. so you, you had a normal laptop. And for people who you know, were not around uh, in 2011 in terms of playing Half-Life, what was extraordinary was the interaction with um, real people. I mean... You know, th this sounds like another thing to to get excited about, but back then the limit was really the forums or the emails or yeah. a bit of the social media. But we never were in a position to have a three D kind of uh, avatar, and you could really have fun with that, and essentially you know go and and, and socialize. And and I think that certainly for me, Half Life as a creation for the Valve Corporation was probably more of a proof of concept for application that would then move into the world of sciences, probably university and the army. Absolutely right. Do you remember decimal currency coming in? Well, I come from a nation where we've had decimal currency forever. Yeah, yeah. So, but I must tell you, when I arrived in 1991, then in the UK, and people were still using uh, what would you call it the imperial system for yeah. all everything you know um, and people were still you know talking to me so that was what 20 years later and in the conversation mixed both the uh, the shillings and <laughs> whatever, whatever else and and proper money as i would call it uh and what what is interesting is so the decimal currency well has worked now but people are still hanging on to their yards and their miles and their feet and their inches, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I actually can very vaguely remember the day that uh, decimal currency came in. Believe it or not, I was at infant school in the very, very first class at infant school. And the teacher was called Mrs. Fielding. I can remember Mrs. Fielding. She had those sort of glasses with the sort of pointy bits at the side. And I was probably only about five years old, Pascal. And I remember it because she had taken delivery of all this new money and it was all wrapped up in paper tubes. And she sat there and we all crowded around her desk and she basically opened up these paper tubes and all these new gleaming 1p yeah. pieces spilled out and all these gleaming 2p pieces spilled out and 10ps and this that and the other and here we were decimals but yeah i can remember my mum and dad for many 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 years afterwards and still to this day still going on about threepenny bits and tuppence right. <laughs> and shillings and 10 bob and stuff like that and my goodness we're over 50 years on from that now and st still people can't move on i love it anyway the last one i wanted to very briefly talk about was the um, second dr beeching report now interestingly enough when i've been doing a few of my vlogs recently i've made reference to dr beeching and the dr beeching's first report which was actually um launched in 1963 was the one that most people actually talk about and that was where he closed hundreds of stations thousands of stations in the uk and quite a lot of branch lines what i hadn't realized until i was putting this news item together was that there was second dr beeching report that came out in 1965 is what has led to effectively the infrastructure that we have today. And that's where he consolidated everything that was left after he'd taken the axe to everything else. And he consolidated it into effectively nine 
just nine main lines in the UK. Obviously, you have the West Coast line and the East Coast line and, and some others, but everything else from before that era had been completely torched by Dr. Beeching. And I may I think perhaps that this is one of those examples where something that happened in the past, however well-intentioned, has actually led to quite a lot of problems today because I think that with this drive now to green technology and trains are better than cars, aren't they? And we should be getting on the train. It's the fact that Dr. Beeching basically axed more than three quarters of the train lines from the UK has meant that we are in the situation we are now where we're congested, we're overcrowded and our options for building as typified by the fiasco of HS2 means that we just haven't got the infrastructure in this country that we deserve. So I think here's an example of something from the past that hasn't genuinely benefited us here in the in the in the present, even though it was probably done with the best intentions at the time. Yeah, and sixty years on, I mean, when you think about the standing of UK PLC in the world when rail became became a thing and the innovation around you know uh, engines and, and that kind of things and somehow a bit like with IT and computing we've not been able to hold on to it and other nations are, are, have taken over or superseded and and this um, legacy legacy is such a problem for um, Western nations, including France and Germany, for that matter. It's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we don't want to end on a negative. So let's come back up to date, Pascal. Let's come back up to date and talk about some of the amazing apps that can make our lives as marketers and business people really work in a positive manner. Let's move on to marketing, tech and apps. Well, Pascal, what technological wonders are you going to amaze us with this week? Well, listen, these are, I would say, updates more, but it is about tech. But recently, Google Stock Alphabet made two big announcements. And I say big because they have quite an impact on businesses, our marketing activities, and the way we're going to be thinking about communicating with our audiences moving forward. So we'll begin with YouTube and live streaming. Now it's been possible to live stream on YouTube for quite some time. It took a while suddenly for us to be able to do it on mobile phones and using the portrait style to go back to emulating perhaps what's happening on Instagram and TikTok. But the big news, a big update is that in the future, there's going to be a rollout, of course, when you go live on YouTube using your mobile phone in portrait mode, you will be essentially highlighted in the YouTube Shorts tab. Now, this is big because one of the big challenges for live streaming, and you and I have done the test, is actually the disappointment because you can't get the reach and the visibility. And we've learned over the years to kind of console ourselves by saying, well, never mind, it, it'll be in the replay that we're going to get the reactions and, and the audience and so on. They would be so much nicer to have an audience when you go live. But the audience doesn't know you're live. I mean, you could try a number of things. And with particularly mobile phone users, with the YouTube Shorts tab being now properly top and, uh, of the screen, and even when you scroll, there's a secondary kind of, um, there's four recommended um, videos for you to watch. 
And I think this is actually quite an important news and people may um, rekindle an interest in going live streaming on YouTube, particularly when they are on the go using a mobile phone in, in portrait mode. I'll get a reaction in a moment. But the second announcement then is from Google with their AI powered um, companion called Bard. Bard has been renamed Gemini recently. <coughs> uh, I'm imagining that the marketing team wanted something starting with a G like Google. You can't blame marketers for looking for alliterations. So Gemini is now, 1.0 is now the new Bard, if you will, with better um, kind of um, replies to your queries and new features. And I had a play over the weekend and I was super impressed. I did a comparison between Gemini, ChatGPT, Perplexity, you know, I'm not sure like this one, and Microsoft Corp Pilot. And I have to say, Gemini was giving more comprehensive answers in that kind of conventional uh, search mode. So uh, have a play. If you're using Bard, don't worry, it's, it's trans transferred over to your to Gemini. You won't have to do anything. You will not lose your previous search and importantly, the results to your queries. And um, have a go. I think that's going to become a very important virtual assistant for content ideas, content outlines, to do some research and so on to allow you to go. And maybe indeed what you could do, as an example for you, use Gemini to give you the um, structure and the script for your next live streaming, following the advice from Captivate.fm, and then go live on YouTube and get yourself featured on the YouTube Shorts tab. Yeah, I think it was inevitable, wasn't it, that that uh, YouTube Shorts portrait mode live would effectively inhabit that that shelf, the short shelf. And it's just effectively a reaction to Instagram live and TikTok live. But uh, yeah, I've tried a few live streams on my YouTube channel and it, it's the usual story. The, the algorithm doesn't seem to be particularly supportive despite their protestations. And whilst I got a relatively decent number of people watching the live stream, hardly anybody watches it after the event. And, and, and it therefore doesn't really fit within your overall strategy. I still don't think that YouTube has reconciled shorts versus long form. And it almost still feels to me as if it's two YouTube two completely different YouTube styles. And you could almost argue that you should have a shorts account and then a long form account as well. And people will disagree with me, but it seems I've tried doing shorts and sometimes it pushes people. You do get some subscribers, but they're not really interested in your long form stuff. So there's no point in doing mm. it and, and vice versa. The people who watch your long form stuff probably don't want you to do shorts either. So I'm not sure where that's going to go. Perhaps live will be the thing that, that links the two together. My tech this week, probably a very short one, actually, Pascal. Um, I've always been a fan of the dictation software that's built in to the Apple iPhone and the iPad. And pretty much every app on the phone, there's a little microphone icon. You can press it and you can talk into your app and it comes up with the words on screen. And over the years, it has become more and more and more accurate. It really is quite phenomenal how accurate it is. And I actually do the first drafts of quite a lot of the stuff that I write, articles and content, by just talking the words into my phone. And... Yes, you sometimes have to go through and alter the, the punctuation and a few spelling mistakes, but actually it's pretty accurate. Over the last few days, I've been thinking about upgrading my Windows computer. And whilst I was doing some research about Windows 11, I came, up, I came across 
um, a piece of software which I haven't got on my PC, which is called Windows Speech Recognition. Now, <clears throat> it does say that it's only available in Windows 11, but actually you can get it for Windows 10. So I downloaded it and gave it a try, and it's pretty good. Um, it's uh, They claim it's 95% accurate. So if you speak into it, it's only going to be about 5% of it comes out wrong. And I've given it a try, and it certainly does work. And that just sort of sent me a little bit down a rabbit hole thinking about dictation software. And as you would expect, if you do a Google search on dictation software, there's quite a lot of it. But in addition to Windows speech recognition, I also recognized one that I had used way back in the past, and it's called Dragon by Nuance. Now, I remember buying this, it must have been 10 years ago, because it came on a DVD and you had to load it up before you then started using it. And I remember at the time getting quite excited. And after having tried it for a few days, I realized it was so in its infancy that the, the mistake levels were so high that I just ended up deleting it and never going back to it. But having seen the Dragon by Nuance, the more up-to-date version now, which of course you just download off the internet, it is showing better um, accuracy levels than even Windows and Apple. So I think that if that's the way that you like to write, you know, you'd probably be able to get away with the uh, the Apple or the new Windows one. But if you want absolute pinpoint accuracy, then maybe don't listen to what I said about Dragon 10 years ago. Go and see what Dragon can do for you now. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, Dragon was my first one as well. But I must have had it before you because I had floppy disks then to oh, install goodness. on my on my very, very first very large and heavy laptop. Uh, and yeah, like you, uh, it wasn't quite there, but I, I saw suddenly the the usefulness and and this idea of dictation or capturing you know the kind of voice to text and and the, the reverse i think people are reconnecting with it it's fascinating you know people are capturing ideas capturing the essence of meetings and and uh look at repurposing podcasts and so on so have a look everyone and i think this could be a great addition to your marketing stack thank you pascal great ideas as always we're finally here. This is the part of the show which we always get excited about. We are going to take a look at this week's film in film marketing right after this. Well, Pascal, you chose this week's film. You are taking us back to 1991. The film is Thelma and Louise, directed by Ridley Scott. So let's take a look at the trailer. Thelma. I'll get it! Thelma, haven't I told you I can't stand it when you holler in the morning? I'm sorry, darling. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. Yeah, I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Thelma. Is he your husband or your father? Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? Did you see his butt? <laughs> Thelma! Have you lost your mind? Woo! I'm uh, Investigator Hal Slocum, Arkansas State Police. 
You get your butt back here, Thelma, now. As you know, we've tapped your phone. What? Maybe you got a few too many parking tickets. Thelma, uh, what happened? You're getting in deeper every moment you're gone. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? Now, I swear, three days ago, neither one of us would have ever pulled a stunt like this, but if you was able to meet my husband, you'd understand why. What? Boys, shoot the radio. The police radio, Louise. Got it. Thelma and Louise. How do you like the vacation so far? <laughs> Now, I have a theory, Roger. Okay. I think all trailers should be done like this because the world would be a better place with the voice. And do you know that these were simpler times <laughs> more than 30 years ago and how you would communicate, you know, the storyline of a movie and attract an audience to go to the theatres? Yeah, and as I said earlier, we watched this film again probably for the first time since 1991, just last night. Now, obviously, this film has a huge reputation. It's become iconic, obviously directed by Ridley Scott. I mean, that's that's enough, isn't it, in most people's eyes to set it up there. And I don't know whether it's the fact that when it came out, obviously a road movie with a couple of women who were effectively doing what they wanted to and kicking people's butts and having fun and having adventures. Maybe that was new in 1991. But when I watched it last night, I, I just didn't get that sense of awe and that sense of reputation that maybe the films had. And, and maybe that's because in the intervening time, we've seen lots more films about women having fun out on the road and kicking ass and all of that sort of thing. Or maybe that genre is now a little bit passe but i didn't feel watching this last night that this film actually lived up to the reputation that it's had all over, over these years what do you think yeah well i think that makes sense job done you know mm. the, the the movie opened the door so many things i mean you've got to really um for, for me what, what is interesting is just that isn't it that the the the, the duet really of susan sarandon and gina davis created you know uh, an iconic moment in time when it comes to movie making and storytelling and we're going to go back to it wasn't a done deal in terms of movie going ahead anyway and the choices but you know here you are in 1991 where we have two leading roles you know two women leading role and the men are supporting cast yeah and yeah. what was interesting when Gina Davis is interviewed a lot about this because it's the anniversary and so on and she says you know it's fascinating because I think been the, the reverse where two guys go on the road doing what the hell they want and that no, no one would have batted it and I did literally but we were just changing the um you know the, the, the characters around we were changing the genders around and and uh, we had which we know it was the case mixed reviews people thought it was hysterical all the way, despite you know the, the ending and of course the dramatic thing. Others thought, yeah, good, good on you. And others thought it was irresponsible filmmaking and should not have been done. I mean, it was really, really opening up um, uh, debates. And, and I think for me, that's probably what it is. But here we are. Yeah. Only if, last year, the film Barbie had the same reaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I enjoyed it. It was good to see it again. And you have to say there was those moments of, um, you know, absolute uh, 
punching the air. Yeah, go for it. When especially when they blew up the trucker's truck towards the end, you know, um, because he was he was just making all these obscene gestures to them all the way through the film. So they took him into a side into a, off the side of the um, motorway and they blew his truck up. I thought, yeah, go for it. That was that was fantastic. I I just thought they made a few really pretty irrational decisions along the way and they probably made things a lot worse for themselves than they needed to have done uh, and i thought that some of the um some of the male male characters came across as being a little bit inept as well um and, and again it's just probably just a sign of the times but uh, there were some pretty nasty male characters and i guess that that was where i did feel it worked because they were rebelling against that saying i'm sorry no but women don't put up with this sort of attitude anymore yeah um, and that was that was good um and yeah an I iconic film and i've forgotten actually i actually quite remember liking gina davis um at that time because obviously she was in the fly wasn't she which was probably mm. a little bit later than that maybe i can't remember it was around about the same time um and she's an actor you'd actor you just don't hear about anymore obviously susan sarandon's still about but i just can't recall gina davis being anything recently obviously great to see harvey keitel in a pre pulp fiction role <laughs> and brad pitt looking like he just wandered out of school which was uh, he probably had <laughs> he did yeah and there's a wonderful um if people can take the trouble to look on youtube there's a wonderful discussion between gina davis was a guest on the graham norton show and she talks about how she would have had some influence in getting brad pitt to be cast in his first major role um in in there as well and and actually his character creates that pivotal moment where we, we move from this uh, kind of uh, laugh out loud moments really to really the heartbreaking tragedy mm. um i would imagine the vast majority of listeners and viewers have seen Thelma and lewis so we can talk about the ending yeah and again mixed mixed reviews people thought the ending was a complete cop out thought the ending was poorly uh, filmed which i, I think well uh, knowing enough about ridley scott he doesn't make bad decision when it comes to to film and so on but uh yeah i mean putting you on the spot a bit but what do you make of, of the ending or what is i think more of a fable than a real life story back to this is a responsible filmmaking you know yeah I, I don't know it's it's funny because maybe it's another of those things that the memory cheats but my vision or my memory of the driving off the cliff was that the shot was a lot longer and that they took off and there was almost this slow motion dive down towards the canyon floor with lots of emotional music in the background. And when I watched it last night, I was actually quite surprised. They basically go off the cliff and it fades to white. No, is that it? <laughs> I thought it was a lot more um, emotional and, and uh, it, it lasted for a lot longer. So from that point of view, I thought, okay, um maybe it did work much better because my you know when they were actually planning to do it and thinking would that really be the case had they really lost that much hope i mean let's face it they've been chased by some cops and the cops were behind them but wouldn't it have been better just to surrender and 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 have your day in court i don't know but it to me what stood out was the fact i, do, I don't remember the shot being so short 
You know, it was always like this, but it's interesting yeah. how the the mind. For me, back to actually, let's talk about the complexity of marketing this film because this is actually turning upside down the body movie genre, mm. you know, particularly for, from the eighties. And what is interesting, this is a film that takes you transition from the eighties to the nineties. Um, we don't expect female characters to behave in that manner. Also directed by someone who's known mostly from their reputation of you for dark, moody sci-fi movies or even dark, moody contemporary movies like Black Rain, you know? Mm. And if you read enough about the making of and whatever, he was happy to support the movie, maybe be an exec producer, but not to direct it. And this was written by a first-time screenwriter, Kali Kuri, who had experience only in a world of um, documentaries and, and music videos, but this was her first screenplay. So, so as a package, it's, it's, it's still a little, it's a tough one to, to, to get going. So the marketing per se begins in the kind of mid to late 90s. I remember the movie uh, was filmed in the summer of 1990. So in July of 1990, what uh, was done at the time, Remember, this is way before the internet was around. Um, in print format, no doubt, they sent a press kit to the media with announcing the casting of Thelma and Lewis, because there had been a lot of rumors and, and kind of uh, red herrings. And what was interesting, thanks to a you know, keen um, movie historian, there was some um, copies of the press kit. And what they had at the time, because filming had just began, were just literally the PR shots of Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, and the PR shot of Ridley Scott, and then a very, very short synopsis. And back then, they'd not committed to you know, the typeface and the font that makes the identity of the film on the poster. So you had a very, very generic kind of probably Times New Roman. Uh, they didn't even use yet the ampersand. It was still Thelma and A.N.D. Louis Prescott. And they sent that just to get to where the appetite of, um, of, of the media, I suppose, primarily print, uh, radio and, and TV. And then you're going to take us into October when the actual marketing with the real marketing materials started then. Yeah, and in October, we saw proper synopsis. We saw the first proper stills taken from the shows, from the actual film itself. And by February and March, we were seeing teaser posters featuring the Thunderbird car, the Thunderbird convertible, that iconic colour green car going across the uh, across the desert and then and then there was an, an official teaser in March. Again, it's interesting because they were focusing obviously on the characters of Thelma and Louise played by these two actresses. What I hadn't realized is that quite a few other actresses were in pole position for this earlier. Apparently Jodie Foster was up for one of the roles and Meryl Streep at one point, Goldie mm. Horn. I'd forgotten about Goldie Horn. Yeah. I used to like quite a lot of the films that she was in. Private Benjamin was one I remember. Um, but yeah, and once they obviously they, they'd started shooting, they could start to focus on the um, on the characters. And, and, I, and I do like the first two initial media stills. I mean, there's one of them with um, Susan Sarandon wearing the headscarf and the glasses and, and Gina Davis, and they look happy. They've got smiles. They look like they're having fun. And then the second one is the two of them sat on top of the car looking pretty badass, actually, and looking, <laughs> looking quite mean. So you've got that almost that contradiction, happy Thelma and Louise and, you know, don't mess with us, Thelma and Louise in the second set. 
Well, it was interesting um, when I take you over then to, you know, from the initial marketing pack, which will include, of course, a lovely set of um, lobby cars that is built on the still photography. And we move into then the March to April 1981, where we have the official poster. And here, really, I don't know whether it's um, a very simple approach or it was a rushed approach, but so the, the teaser poster just had the desert and a big road moving through the distance and, and the term. And then what they did for the official poster was simply to add a, um, you know, what would you call them, the, those uh, snapshots that people take with those automatic Polaroid. cameras, Polaroids, um, just position on top of the, the poster with the smiley faces of Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. I was thinking it's it's simplistic, but it kind of worked. But also what, what is really important, we must remember that in 1990, um, those automatic cameras were, were, were the craze. People loved going out and about taking those um, stills. I mean, they could only take maybe 16 or 24 back then. And this was the memory of, of the trip. Uh, so I think that was very, very poignant that that's what you would do at the time. And then very, very quickly, you need the feedback from, from the audience. And this began for me and for, for the, the filmmakers in April 1991. I mean, remind you, this movie was released at the end of May in the US and mid-July in the UK. So at the end of April, for the first time, out of competition, the movie was presented uh, as at the premiere, really, at the Venice Film Festival. And by and large, positive reviews with some negative reaction. People just couldn't quite wrap their head around the fact that these were two leading ladies, you know, in, and, and taking on the role that to date had been primarily um, acted by, by men. And what, what really sealed the deal from the point of view of the audience anticipation was really in the following month in May when they were at the Cannes Film Festival and people really talked about Thelma and Louise a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was that that fact was it was mixed mixed reviews from the critics, but a huge talking point probably because of those mixed reviews. And and the, the fact is, we had here a film with really strong female leads, the iconic car, and it was a road trip across America. I mean, again, when you rewatch the film, they they basically took a trip through what I would describe as Hicksville. Uh, America. It wasn't exactly mm. the most salubrious parts of the states that we were seeing. Um, the backwaters, you know, the the the, uh, the dodgy bits, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, iconic, not nonetheless. And I remember then seeing it. Uh, I was in the UK then, 1981. I arrived in the UK, so I went to see it. And my memory was people really having a wonderful time at the theater, at the, the reaction, the antics, and so on. And then, as you pointed out, almost like you know, when you mentioned the photography, there's there's a tipping point where, hang on, this is not going to end well. And the mood changes, and you can feel it in, in the audience as well. And this is a, a movie that, you know, for 1981 uh, has been loved and cherished. So we went all the way through the VHS release a year later, I had a copy, then DVD, Blu-ray, and the 4K release uh, more recently. And of course, there was 25th anniversary celebration with uh, a restoration screening um, at the Cannes Film Festival. And there was a 30th anniversary in 2021, which was sad because we know what the world was like in 2021, Rogers. So the celebration was low key, but they had suddenly, um, you know, the... Um, the uh, Kali Kuri, as well as Sandra Sarrington and Gina Davis, 
at a, a drive-in screening of Thelma and Louise, um, and they had a replica of the car as well. So this movie has been part of the culture that has been celebrated over and over again. Uh, it's won an award, and I think it's really important to point out that Kelly Kuri, as a first-time screenwriter, won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay the, um, the following year, and of course the BAFTAs and Golden Awards celebrated the film as well. So to me, it's just a fun one to review with you because it's so of its time. And the trailer itself tells you you're, you're back in the 90s. And, and what they did to market it was really, really quite interesting. It's interesting going back to the ending. Um, I, I watched over Christmas quite accidentally. It was just on TV and I started watching it. It was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm -hmm. and, and that film ends where they are effectively some, completely surrounded by the army. Um, and there's that iconic shot of them coming out the doorway and there's a freeze frame. Mm -hmm. And you just say, well, it's obvious what happens next, isn't it? And in, I wonder whether there was an em a way of trying to emulate that because Thelma and Louise was a girl-girl buddy movie and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a bloke-bloke buddy movie. But the ending was, you know, inevitable. But it was quite stylized. One was a freeze frame, one was a fade to white. Uh, and I'd wondered whether the one, the, the first influenced the second. Perhaps we'll I, never know. I'm absolutely convinced that that's the case, yeah. you know, um, uh, doing so. So I did some research on, you know, beyond the marketing activities that is expected, you know, the teaser trailer, the teaser posters and that kind of things. What else could, have they done? And again, thanks to, you know, movie historian out there on the interweb, I discovered something called the Pink Thunderbird Tour. Now, at first I was confused because the car in the movie is not pink at all. No. It's a blue-green kind of color. It's stunning, though. I certainly would love to have, you know, that one. But, of course, from a impact and from a PR point of view, if you want to get the attention of the audience and the media, you don't want a car that blends in with the rest. So, <laughs> you know, they did respect the fact that it was still a Thunderbird, and it was still the 1966 Ford Thunderbird, but it was um, kind of um, put in pink. And they drove this car and stopped pretty much in every single kind of shopping mall, movie theaters, and public venues between New York and Los Angeles. And they arrived in Los Angeles the day of the you know, premiere in, in LA as well. And people could jump in a car, have their picture taken um, using, again, maybe some of those Polaroid cameras. And they were distributing flyers and promotional materials. But uh, And I thought, yeah, absolutely. Of course you would do a PR stunt like this. Yeah, it's very good. It's very good, and uh, a pink car. You know, sort of almost like pre um, uh, precognition of Barbie. There, um, great idea. I mean, it must have taken some planning. It's a three thousand mile journey, wow. uh, and they timed it to the second of arriving on the correct day. You know, I'm sure all sorts of things could have thwarted that. But yeah, great idea. And in the days before social media, I suppose it was doubly impressive. Imagine what would have happened today had we, you know, had it happened today with all the oh. socials and the photographs from, from people's phones and everything. That would have been absolutely stratospherically good. Uh, but yeah, hats off to them 30 odd years ago. That was a, that was a great stunt to pull off. No, absolutely. Um, so, so for me, Thelma and Louise, it's that transition from the 80s to the 90s. It's about breaking breaking boundaries and so on. And choosing to entertain an audience, I, I think that in general, th this movie wasn't trying to change the world as it is. You know, It was trying to tell a very good story in a very innovative way. 
using some very, very interesting choices in terms of cast and crew. And here we are, more than 30 years later, still talking about it. Absolutely, and still watching it, as we did last night. Well, thank you, Pascal, for choosing Thelma and Louise. It was good to revisit it. And, um, yeah, really good, really, really good, um, really good epic film and that car i think was the third star for me of the show so everyone thanks so much for watching or listening to two geeks in the marketing podcast that was episode 113 please do let us know what you thought leave a comment on the youtube channel look us up on x formerly known as twitter and just let us know what you'd like us to review in the future, whether it's a piece of content, whether it's a piece of marketing tech and apps, or whether it is a film that you would particularly like us to have a look in detail at the marketing campaign. Until the next episode, please do go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards, and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm-hmm.